The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. Today, Dan Blythe is going to bring us the Word of God from Psalm 8 as we talk about the majesty and glory of the name of our Lord. Let's join Dan now in his message. Good morning. My name is Dan Blythe. We're taking a break uh, this morning in uh, Jason Swanson's Expositions of Acts. We're going to look at a remarkable psalm. I call it Worth, Work, and Wonder. Let me start with a question. Have you ever felt small, little, insignificant? For example, perhaps you were out away from civilization some night, and you looked up at the stars, and there were a gazillion of them, and you felt so small, and you wonder, how in the world do I have any place in this huge universe? Or maybe you went to one of those megalopolises and walked down the streets and looked up at the skyscrapers, and you asked yourself, what do all the people that go to work here, where do they live and what do they do? And, and how do I fit in? Or maybe you feel like Frank and Ernest. When you finally retire, you're going to try to figure out what you were working at. How do we fit in? We often feel very small and very insignificant. Well, David felt that way as well. And he has given us a psalm, Psalm 8, that describes that. Let's listen to it. Psalm 8. For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, would you please take these words written perhaps 3,000 years ago and cause them to come alive for us today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the author, as you can tell, is David. And he had felt what you and I have felt. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you give thought to him. Like many of David's poems, this one was written for the choir to be sung. So he gives some directions. The directions don't help us too much because we don't know what Giddeth means. It has something to do with Gath. Perhaps it's an instrument that David saw down at Gath when he was on the run from King Saul. Or maybe it was a melody that he heard down there. In any event, the choir director must have known it, but we don't know what that melody was. But let's get to the psalm itself. Did you notice something unusual 
about the structure of the psalm as it was read. Something kind of unusual. Did you notice that it starts and ends the same way? Now, this is called inclusio. Those gals that are studying psalms can be explain this to you more fully than I will here today, but uh, inclusio includes. It, it kind of makes a boundary, a, a bracket around something, and it suggests that you will understand what's inside if you understand the bracket, and that the insides will help you appreciate the bracket more. It's kind of an interplay. It's almost like it's a room, and you walk through one door. That's the first mention of it. Then you interact with some of the things in the room, the material in the psalm. And when you walk out the other door, it's the same words, but they now have more meaning. An inclusio. Uh, Right in the middle, of course, David talks about us, our place in creation. He breaks it down into two parts, how God has honored us and what God has given us to do. Now, the psalm starts with, O Lord, our Lord. Do you notice something unusual about the word Lord here? That's right. One of them has different typescript than the other, doesn't it? Okay, I'm going to go into the deep weeds here just for a little bit. Come with me, it won't hurt, and I think it will help you. That first word translates what we call the tetragrammaton. Tetra. Four grammaton letters. And so there's a word that is the four letters, and it's translated here, Lord, with all caps. The second word is Adonai. Adonai is a Hebrew word that just means the master, the boss, the person who's in charge. Now, they're both translated the same way here, and behind that lies a story. These are the four letters. Now, Hebrew reads from right to left, so you got to start with the, looks like an apostrophe on the right-hand side. That's the first letter. If we were going to anglicize this, we would call it Y-H-W-H. This is God's personal or covenant name. When someone speaks of him this way or addresses him with this name, it means that they have a relationship with him. They view themselves as in covenant with him. Let me illustrate. When I was little and my mother called me, she would often call me Danny. Danny, time for supper. But when she called Daniel Paul Blyde, I knew our relationship was different. In the same way, if you call someone Yahweh, that's different than Adonai. The one is you have a relationship. The other is they're the boss. Okay? The Tetragrammaton. Now, I said Yahweh, but we're not really sure exactly how it's pronounced. We're pretty good on the Yah, because it occurs in lots of other names. Isaiah, Elijah, so on. But the Jews stopped saying it. You know, there was this commandment about not taking the Lord's name in vain. 
And they said, that's easy. We just won't ever use it. And so when they come to this in Scripture, they will read Adonai instead of Yahweh. We go deeper into the weeds, but we're almost done. Classical Hebrew didn't have any vowels. No A, E, I, O, and U. It was just written in consonants. You say, well, how in the world did they ever read it? It's easier than you think. Here's something by Ben Franklin. I wonder if you can read it. I took out all the vowels. Sound it out. Did you hear that? Early to bed, early to rise. Yeah, good, you got it. Okay? See how it works? Let's try another one, shall we? Oh, man, look at you. Okay? So if you have some familiarity with it, it's even easier, isn't it, to read? Now, about 500 years after Jesus, Hebrew was starting to be a not-spoken language anymore. And there were a group called the Masoretes who wanted to preserve how the Scripture was spoken or said. And so they added little marks, sometimes above a letter, sometimes in the middle of a letter, sometimes underneath. These marks were called pointings. They did not change a consonant at all. But they added these little dots or pointings so that people would know how it was pronounced. Okay? So the top line here shows you Melech. Three consonants. The second line is pointed. Do you see the little things that they added? Okay. Didn't change the consonants at all. Well, what do you suppose... Oh, here's another one. Can you do this one? Come on. I am the... Who brought you... Out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of... Yeah, good, okay. There's hope for you, I think. Well, what do you suppose the Masoretes did? When they came to those four letters, the Tetragrammaton, well, they took the consonants from God's name. They took the vowels from Adonai the word that they would substitute for God's name. And through confusion, you come out with Yehovah or Jehovah. Jehovah is not God's name. I'm not saying throw out all of the great music that talks about Jehovah and so on. You're free to share this with a Jehovah's Witness if you want. But Jehovah is actually formed taking the consonants from one word and the vowels from another. 
So, with all of our English versions today, how do translators handle it? Well, guess what? When they come to the Tetragrammaton, they don't translate it as Yahweh or whatever it would be translated. They translate it as Lord, just like the Hebrews did. But whenever it's Yahweh, they put Lord with all caps. Do you see that? I want to be sure you see that because a quiz is coming in just a moment. When they translate Adonai, it's all lowercase. Do you see the difference? Okay. And this is generally true of most English translations. So when you read your Old Testament, you can tell if the word Lord is there, whether it's God's covenant name or it's just the one in in control who's in charge. Well, what do you do, do you think, when they come to, oops, pardon me, Lord Yahweh. To be consistent, they should translate it Lord, Lord, right? But that doesn't make much sense. So they translate it Lord God and they put God all in caps. Got it? Quiz time. I'll read the English. Whenever I stop reading, I want you to fill in the Hebrew. Hint. It will either be Yahweh or Adonai. Okay? Here we go. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to, you are my, I have no good besides you. Well, that sounded good. Oops. Yahweh says to my, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O hear my voice. You're doing well. If you should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? Here's a good example of someone talking to God and using the covenant name to have a relationship with you. Here's the... the, uh, Curveball. Okay, ready? You are my hope, O Adonai Yahweh. Good. You are my confidence from my youth. Okay. End of journey to the deep weeds. But that may help you in reading your Old Testaments to know if it's Danny or Daniel Paul Blyde. Oh, Lord, our Lord, our psalm begins, how majestic is your name. The word majestic means impressive, visible for all to see. Uh, The word was used in the Hebrew of, of a person who comes into a room and is almost intimidating because of their nobility. It was used of a, a ship that was great and imposing. And so the idea is that God's name is made very impressive by everything you can see in the earth that he's done. His name represents him and all that he is. 
So David starts by saying, Oh Yahweh, my God, my Lord. When I look around, everything that I see is very impressive about you. Okay. He continues. You've displayed your splendor, pardon me, above the uh, heavens. Your awesome power. Your authority. All the earth, above them, everywhere. David says, wherever I look, I see evidence of your fingerprints and of your greatness. And so I hope you'll humor me here. I don't have any trouble picturing David maybe out with the sheep, laying down on a mid-eastern night. There's no light pollution. He's looking up, and he's seeing the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, that's what makes me think it's nighttime, which you have ordained. As he looks at all that, he feels small. Insignificant, just like we do. And so he asks the question, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man? Now, this is the planet that David was on when he did that. Happens to be the same one we uh, inhabit, doesn't it? And it was on a night. Do you recognize that place on our planet? By the lights. David was about... Right there, looking up. Of course, uh, we're over here, aren't we? And you can see there's a lot of light pollution there, isn't there? But we know so much more than David did about this planet, its place, and what God has made. We know it's part of a solar system, a number of planets that circle the sun, right? And you can see that our planet is bigger than some of the other ones in our solar system. It's also smaller than some other ones in our solar system. But you know our planet, our solar system, all pivots around a sun, a star. You can see how big we are compared to the sun. Not very impressive. We're the little dot at the bottom. But our sun is a star, and astronomers tell us that there are as many stars in the universe as there are grains of sand on every beach in the world. Now do you feel small? Think of David knowing that. But our sun is not that much. You can see how big it is compared to some other stars, like Arcturus, and how big that is compared to some other stars. And so no wonder David wrote, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? The word man there means man as a frail, mortal creature. What are us weak little piddly things 
that you think about us. And the Son of Man, the word here, Adam, a created being, that you care about us. Lord, I'm feeling pretty small and insignificant as I look up. And then David does something that's really important that we also should do too when we are kind of confused as to where we fit in things. He thinks back to the start. Let's see. When God set this all up, what were the directions that he gave? You know the saying, when all those fails, read the directions. Okay. And so he goes back to what are called, or we call the creation ordinances. These are the initial instructions that God gave to people to see if he can get a clue there as how we fit in. If you have your bulletin, there's a place where you could jot these down if you want to. The first one is to be fruitful and multiply. This means that if you have ever contributed to a baby you have already fulfilled one of the creation ordinances. Isn't that good? Because that's part of what God told us to do. Secondly, he said, I want you to multiply and fill the earth. I don't know if you can see those words, but the top three lines are all Asia. A lot of folks there. Then there's a number of folks in Africa. And the least little population is in North America, where we live. But you say, well, I've, I've heard, Dan, that we need to worry about overpopulation. Maybe this filling the earth isn't valid anymore because we already did. And it's true, we have spread out. But do you know if I took every person in the world and I gave them a 12 foot by 10 foot space, I could put them all in the state of Texas. The population density in Texas would be about the density in the Bronx or San Francisco. Okay. My point is there's still room. Okay. Don't stop having those babies. Seriously, there is a book out called The Empty Planet. And the authors argue that whereas before we had thought that our planet was going to grow to maybe, we're at 6.1 billion right now, that maybe we'd grow to 11 billion and that'd be more than we could handle. They now think it's going to get maybe to 9 billion, at which point it's going to turn and begin to shrink. And once that turn happens, these guys say in their book, it will never stop. This is already happening in some nations. Japan, Italy, Hungary, Germany, and Russia. They are not having enough Italian babies to keep the population the same. It's going down. These guys say it's going to happen to the whole planet. We'll let the Lord worry about that. My point is, fill the earth. Part of our job. Nancy Piercy says 
these first two, be fruitful and multiply, are like developing the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws, everything that takes people to come and to be together. The next creation ordinance is to subdue the earth. Nancy Piercy adds, this means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, design computers, and so on. That's where David especially fastens as he thinks about the creation ordinances. But they continue. Rule. Not only subdue the earth, but rule over the creatures on the earth. Fish, birds. A fifth creation ordinance is to work. Obviously, to subdue the earth, you're going to have to do some work. But God gave Adam work to do in the garden before Adam had ever sinned. Okay. Work is not punishment for sin. Work's a good thing. Now, unfortunately, in a fallen world, work now gives you thorns and thistles. I understand that, okay? But work is not bad. The scripture also adds, God completed the work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. God blessed the seventh day. You may be aware that Jesus had a lot of controversy with religious types during his ministry here, especially over this notion of a, a day, a Sabbath, one day in seven. At one point, here's what Jesus said to them. Look it. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. We weren't made so we could keep a rule. The principle of resting one and seven was made for our benefit. And Jesus continues, and by the way, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, my busy, busy friends, 150 years ago, they discovered gold in this state. And people began to flock west. Two wagon trains left St. Louis on the same day, headed for the gold and them thar hills. One of them was peddled to the metal the whole way. The other had some religious fanatics that wanted to stop and rest every seventh day. Which wagon train do you think made it to California first? Yeah, the one that stopped and rested. We do much better. We are more productive, if you like, if we work six and rest one than if we work seven. So, a day of rest to go with our work. And finally, marriage. God made Eve, brought Eve to Adam. Adam said, wow, Hebrew paraphrase. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You may remember that some religious leaders approached Jesus one day and said, look it, uh, we got some issues with divorce. You're like the strict view or the narrow, or the, uh, the narrow, the wide view. And Jesus said, well, you know, I think we should go back to the creation ordinances. And he goes right back to this passage. These are so refreshing for me to think through. God made us, he put us here, and this is what he gave us to do. The things are really confusing now, aren't they? I mean, I know this said God made the male and female. But we're not so sure about that, are we, in our culture? You know, what do you feel like today? Right? And marriage, a woman and a man. Well, you know, one guy wants to marry his horse. What are we going to say? So we've drifted a long way from this clarity that God gave us at the very start to our confusion and to the hurt of many people. Well, it appears to me clear that David, David, as he's thinking through Psalm 8, is thinking through what we call Genesis 1 and 2. You made him a little lower than God. You crown him with godly and mad, God, uh, with glory and majesty because God made us in his image. There is something about humans that image or mirror something about God. Perhaps it is the moral sensibility, knowing right and wrong, a conscience. Perhaps it is the ability for rational thought. Certainly it's the ability to relate to God. And perhaps to be creative like God is creative. But this is a big deal. A few chapters later in Genesis, we read this. If anybody kills somebody, that person needs to be killed. Because the person he killed, he murdered, was in the image of God. A person has such value and worth to God that if you kill him, you would forfeit your life. But again, David is especially interested in moving on to the next part. You make him to rule. You put all things under his feet. That's us he's talking about. As Genesis says, I want you to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, every living thing. So these, these two commands, subdue the earth and rule it, become what many call the dominion mandate. And again, there's a place for you to jot these down if you want. So you're Adam and Eve. You've been given these instructions. Where do you start? Well, I think one of the things you've got to do is figure out how this place where you are works. So you're going to start doing research. 
into how do things work around this planet, into Earth's systems and processes. And we call that science. And everybody that ever did any research into how things work scientifically was doing what God told us to do. The systematic study of the natural universe involves measurement, experiment, observation, formulation of laws, science. But of course, that's no good unless we put it to use. So once we begin to understand how this place works, then we want to develop ways to use it for the benefit of people and for the glory of God. And we call that technology. And I wonder if you see the area where you work in any of these fields. Transportation, energy, biology, medicine, engineering, manufacturing, etc., etc. Okay? If you work in any of those fields, and I think many of you do, you are carrying out God's original mandate for us. You can go into the boss tomorrow and say, I just want you to know, boss, I'm here by orders of God. Of course, third, the scientists can have found it, technology can have developed it, but it's got to somehow get distributed to the people that can use it. And so we need business and commerce. And a lot of you work in this area, don't you? Trouble is, all those scientists and technologists and salesmen are going to die. So we need to teach the next generation. So we got to have education as well. You with me so far? And then we need to help people understand and appreciate this. To value all of this. To see it as a gift from God graciously given to us to use. And this is where the fine arts come in. But I want you to notice that the basis of all of this is it starts with science. Contrary to what you may have heard, there is no problem between science and what the Bible teaches. Okay? God wrote two books the Bible, and the book of nature. Same author. The books do not finally contradict. You may have to study some to figure out how they fit together. I understand that. Okay. I'm talking about science studying how the earth works. I'm not talking about philosophical scientism or some of those views. Okay, Those are dangerous. I need to add one more to this. I would argue that all legitimate human enterprises fits under what we've talked about. I need to add one more. Law enforcement, which was not needed <laughs> before the fall. So if you're in the military or policeman or whatever, this is where you fit. This is such a good quote. I wanted it to be up in front of you. The most striking feature of Psalm 8 and its dominant theme, if we count verses, 
It's description of man and his place in the created order. But the psalm does not begin by talking about man. Remember, inclusio. It begins with a celebration of the surpassing majesty of God, and this places men and women within a cosmic framework. It is a way of saying from the outset that we will never understand human beings unless we see them as God's creatures and recognize that they have special responsibilities to their creator. We will never understand human beings unless we see them against the backdrop of these creation ordinances. Why and how we were made. Isn't it a nicely balanced poem? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? And that's how it ends. We could schematize it uh, A and then A prime. In the middle section, God's honoring of mankind would be B, and, and the ruling place that God gave us would be B prime. Such a nicely balanced psalm. But the discerning amongst you are saying, Hold everything. You skipped one verse. What about that verse 2? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful. What does that have to do with this psalm? At first glance, it doesn't seem to fit. David, what were you thinking as you lay down there on your back on the grass? Well, heaven's praising God, the stars, the earth. And now he adds to that seemingly insignificant little creatures, babies and infants, are also involved in giving praise. That expression that the, they are uh, giving him uh, power uh, means that they are praising him for his power or his strength. You can see how Jesus used it. Have you never read, he said, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Because babies and infants can't give strength to God, but they can acknowledge his strength by praising him, even if they're little ones. It reminds me of the story of the, the child that was growing up with atheist parents who asked the parents, do you think God knows that we don't believe in him? <laughs> out of the mouth of infants and babes. So why is this verse in the psalm? I'd like to suggest to you that in a certain sense, it's the psalm in miniature. It talks about little, insignificant, powerless babies that are able to do remarkable things that are appointed to great purposes. I think David, as he reflected on this, said, you know, this is kind of how God does things. He uses insignificant or little people to fulfill his purposes, even with big people. Like, for example, maybe that time when I met Goliath. And we find this elsewhere. Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. I'm not meaning to insult you. The Bible says this about you. Not many mighty. 
Not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may uh, nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So God likes using apparently insignificant people to do great things. Paul writes elsewhere, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. When I'm weak, then I am strong. So we've talked a little bit from this psalm about your your worth. You're made in the image of God. You're a creation of God. He has great purposes for you. We've talked about your work. And how your work, I hope, lines up with God's original intentions. We turn now finally to the frame of the psalm. Once again to worship, to marvel at the power and creativity God displayed, how impressive it is to look at creation. John Paper argues that since the angels and spirit beings as God is, our spirit beings as God is up to the point of creation, there must have been no matter or anything like matter in the universe. No angel had ever seen a star, a cloud, a sunset, or anything else that has form, weight, motion, texture, or color. There's no matter. Parker imagines God to have said, watch this. And then he spoke the galaxies into existence. Piper writes, imagine the awe and wonder that exploded among the angels. They had never seen or even imagined matter. They're all ministering spirits. They have no material bodies like we do. When God brought material stuff into existence with all its incredible variety and utterly unheard of qualities of sight and sound and smell and touch and taste, this was totally unknown to the angels. God had made it all up. It was not like, not like the unveiling of a new painting made of all the colors and paints we're all familiar with. It was absolutely, totally, unimaginably new. And the response of the angels, the sons of God, was to shout for joy. So as we conclude today, I want to give you a little bit of time to worship. To recapture, perhaps, to some degree, what the angels thought when they saw it. To recapture what David thought as he lay on his back and saw how impressive Everything that God had made was. Tom Fetke set Psalm 8 to music. And so we have that. And everything that you're about to see was thought of by God.
Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.